Chapter Eighteen of the Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter Eighteen. We found every place splendid in those weeks as we let the wanderlust carry us on, and as though emerging from some vivid dream. Various places and faces of people stand out in my memory now as then they loomed in upon our absorption. I remember the little old harbor of Cherbourg, gleaming in the moonlight, where when we landed Eleanor said, "'Let's stay here a while.' So of course we did, and then went on to Paris. We took an apartment very French, and absurdly small, from a former Beaux-Arts friend of mine. I remember the kindly face of the maid who took such beaming care of us, the café in front of which late at night we sat and watched the huge, shadowy carts go by on their way to the market-halls, the sunrise flower-market where we filled our cab with moth-roses and plants, Poland songs in ambassadors, delicious petit allées in the bois, our favorite rides on the tops of the buses, that old religious place of mine down under the bridge by Notre Dame. All these and more we saw in fragments, now and then looking out with vivid interest on all the life around us, only to return to each other, into each other, I should say, for the exploring was quite different now. There had been such hours between us that nothing intimate could be held back. Nothing? Well, nothing that I thought of then, for somehow or other in those glad, eager afternoons and evenings, in those nights nothing disturbingly ugly in me so much as a thought of showing its head. Three years before in this stirring town I had felt guilty at being a monk, but now I felt no guilt at all, for down the Champs-Élysées our cab rolled serenely now, and even our driver's white hat wore an air as though it had a place in life. From Paris we started for Munich, but we did not stop there. We happened to feel like going on. So we went through to Constantinople, whence we took a boat to Batum and went up into the Caucasus, which Eleanor had heard about once from an engineer friend of her father's. I remember Kutais, a little town by a mountain torrent with gray vine-covered walls around it, Shops opened into the walls like stalls. There we would buy things for our supper, and then in a crazy vehicle we would drive miles out on the broad mountainside to an orchard pink with blossoms, where we would build a fire and cook, and an old man in a long yellow robe and with a turban on his head would come out of his cabin and bring us wine, and the stars would appear and the frogs tune up in the marshes far down in the valley below and the filmy mists would rise and the mountains would tower overhead. And the effect of this place upon us was to make us feel it was only one of innumerable such vacation places that lay ahead, festival spots in long, radiant lives. We felt this vaguely, silently. So often we talked silently. Then there would come the most serious times, when with the deepest thoughtfulness we would survey the years ahead and very solemnly place ourselves, our views, and beliefs. Miraculous how agreed we were! We believed we found in good workmanship, in honest building, in getting things done. 
we believed in Eleanor's father and all those around and above him that could help his kind of work. We were impatient of soft-headedness in rich people who had nothing to do, and of heavy muddle-headedness in the millions who had too much to do, and of muckraking of every kind which only got in the way of the builders. For the building of a new, clean, vigorous world was our religion, and it did not seem cold to us, because our lives were in it and because we were in love. There was no end to the plans for ourselves, for my writing, our home, the friends we wanted, the trips, the books and the music, and through it all and from under it all there kept bursting up that feeling which we knew was the most important of all, the exultant realization that we too were just starting out. When at last we came back home this feeling took a deeper turn. I noticed the change in Eleanor. She had far less thought and time for me now. She seemed to be strangely absorbed in herself. Nearly all her time and strength were given to our small apartment in the same building as that of her father. By countless feminine touches she was making it look like the home she had planned. She was getting all in order. And then one night she told me why. Her arms were close around me and her voice was so low I could barely hear. There's going to be another soon, another one of us, do you hear? A very tiny, blessed one. I held her slowly tighter. Oh, my darling girl, I whispered. Suddenly I relaxed my hold, for I was afraid of hurting her now. In a moment all was so utterly changed, and as in that brave, quiet way of hers she looked smiling steadily into my eyes, my throat contracted sharply, for into my mind leaped the memory of what the harbor had shown to me on that sultry, hideous summer night in the tenement over in Brooklyn. And that must happen to my wife. Oh, my dear, she whispered, if you only knew how much strength I stored up way over there in the mountains. So she had been thinking of this even then, and yet had told me nothing. Here was the beginning of a long, anxious period. Month after month I watched her quietly preparing. Slowly we drew into ourselves while her father and mine and Sue and our friends came and went, but mattered little. I wondered if Dylan ever felt this. As he came down to us in the evenings from the apartment upstairs, where he and Eleanor had meant so much to each other only a year before, he gave no sign that he saw any change. But one night after he had gone Eleanor happened to pick up the evening paper which had dropped from his bulging overcoat pocket. "'Billy, come here,' she said presently. "'What is it?' "'Look at this.' The President of the United States had gone with Eleanor's father that day in a revenue-cutter over the harbor and had spoken of Dillon's great dream in vigorous terms of approval. "'And father was here this evening,' said Eleanor very slowly, "'and yet he never told me a word. He saw that I'd heard nothing and he thought I didn't care. Oh, Billy, I feel so ashamed!' But she soon forgot the incident. My suspense grew sharp as the time grew near. I had a good doctor, I was sure of that, and he told me he had an excellent nurse. But what good were all these puny precautions? The tenement room in Brooklyn kept rising in my mind. 
She sat by the window that last night, and looking down on the faraway lights of the river we planned another trip abroad. A few hours later I stood over her, holding her hand, and with her white lips pressed close together and her eyes shut, she went through one of those terrible spasms. Then she looked up in the moment's relief, and suddenly here was that smile of hers. And she said, low between clenched teeth, "'Well, dearie, another starting out.'" End of chapter 18 Recording by Tom Weiss